So we're on Isaiah 25 tonight. Isaiah 25. The black Bibles are the Pew Bibles. They, page 568. Page 568. Isaiah 25. We'll be reading verses 1 through 10 of Isaiah 25. O Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you. I will praise your name. For you have done wonderful things, plans formed of old, faithful, and sure. For you have made the city a heap, the fortified city a ruin. The place of aliens is a city no more. It will never be rebuilt. Therefore, strong peoples will glorify you. Cities of ruthless nations will fear you. For you have been a refuge to the poor, a refuge to the needy in their distress, a shelter from the rainstorm and a shade from the heat. When the blast of the ruthless was like a winter rainstorm, the noise of aliens like heat in a dry place, you subdued the heat with the shade of clouds. The song of the ruthless was stilled. On this mountain... The Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wines, of rich food filled with marrow, of well-aged wine strained clear. And he will destroy on this mountain the shroud that is cast over all peoples, the sheet that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. Then the Lord God will wipe away the tears from all faces, and the disgrace of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, Lo, this is our God. We have waited for him so that he might save us. This is the Lord for whom we have waited. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation the hand of the Lord will rest on this mountain. This is the word of the Lord. You'll find it helpful to keep that open. I don't know how many of you saw President Obama's press conference after the shooting at the community college in Oregon. Commentators talked about his visible anger and frustration that he was once again in front of our nation talking about gun violence and death. But there was also something else that was kind of woven through what he said. There was this weariness, this weariness of having to yet again stand up and talk about death. And we see that weariness in other places, too. If you've been paying attention to world news, you may have heard there's been a series of stabbings in Israel. Instead of doing large mass killings, there have been some Palestinians who have been just going to different Israelis and just stabbing them, just killing them. And the people who talk about this and talk about the ongoing violence in places like Jerusalem have, when they talk about it, a weariness. Here we are again. Old, old anger displayed in fresh ways. 
And that weariness is there when we talk about Syria or when we talk about North Korea or when we talk about Grand Rapids. There's just a weariness when we think about the death that's around us, just the loss that's around us. We've had losses in our community. We lost Chase, we lost Michael, Jared lost his sister, Jessie's lost her mom, others of us have lost grandparents. And then there are those little deaths, those little deaths that we talked about way back in that first sermon, Labor Day weekend, before any of you had any homework. <laughs> we talked about all those little deaths that you accrue during your college years, like you think you're going to major in this thing, and you begin to take classes in that thing, and you realize you don't like that thing, and that thing certainly doesn't like you. And you got to change it up, and you got to figure it out, and it sends you out wondering, what am I supposed to do? Who am I supposed to be? What do I do now? What do I tell people when I go home for Thanksgiving? Or you have a relationship that's been steady, and it's been going, and then you're kind of imagining how it will play out in the future, and then the person looks at you one day and gives you the line of, we need to talk. Never a good line. You might as well just say, I want to break up with you. And suddenly, all the hopes that you had, the dreams, they just die. They're just gone. For some of us, we're just not where we want to be academically. For others of us, we imagined an athletic season, and it was undone by injury. That just creates a weariness, a weariness around us of just saying, you know, we're trying to do the right thing and be the right people, but it's just so overwhelming. It's so all around us all the time. And this is an old weariness. This isn't new for us. This isn't 2015. This is ancient weariness. And we've seen it in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah has been pretty intense. Those of you who've been doing the Bible study, those of you who've been going to loft regularly, you know Isaiah's been pretty intense. He's been really going after people for their sin and their pride and their drunkenness and their idolatry. But there's something interesting that happens in this section, in, in chapters 24 through 27. There's this little interlude. And that's because we need to remember that even though there were all of these people who were rebelling against God and God said, you're going to be punished, you're going to go into exile, there were righteous people in the midst of all of that. Righteous people who were weary with the death and the destruction all around them, weary knowing that it was coming and they had done everything they could and it wasn't enough to save their nation. Just a weariness of seeing the greed and the idolatry. Just a weariness. And so scholars say that this section right here, this chapters 24 through 27, are this interlude. They're this symbol of hope for all of the righteous who have endured all of the stuff that's come to now, all who have been weary up until now. And it starts with a single voice, Isaiah saying, I will exalt you, I will praise you, you've done wonderful things, plans formed of old, faithful and sure. Because what this little section does, 
We've been zoomed in, right? We've been zoomed in on Judah and Israel and all their problems. They got a lot of problems. We've been zoomed in, and this section, 24 through 27, suddenly zooms out. It says there's a big picture. These plans that have been going on, these things that you've been witnessing, these are from of old. This is not a surprise. God is up to something. And then he goes on to say, the city, you've made it a heap, a fortified city, a room, and the palace, a place of aliens is no more. It will never be rebuilt. Therefore, strong peoples will glorify you. And we think, wait a minute. I thought the destruction of cities was a bad thing. I thought we were against that. But notice that the city that's in here does not have a name. It's not Jerusalem. It's not Babylon. It's city. Because city has become a symbol for the rebellion of God's people. A city is the place where all of these things cluster together. It's where the rich become richer and more greedy. It's where the prostitution happens. It's where the gambling happens. It's where envy happens. It's all about, I want more and more and more. The city has been the place where all of these things kind of center. It's become a symbol for everything that's wrong. And so to the righteous, the idea that this place that has been the symbol of adultery and rebellion would be made a heap, would be completely destroyed, That's good news. This thing that they have been fighting against, this thing that they have been lamenting, the sin that they have seen repeated over and over and over again, done. And then he says this, you've been a refuge to the poor, a refuge to the needy, because the people who are most taken advantage of in these economic societies, the place of the city where greed dominates, it's the poor who get exploited. And we've been talking about that through the whole book. How they haven't cared for the widow, they haven't cared for the orphan, they've been, you know, taking all of their harvest right up to the edge, they've been stealing land from people, it's been bad and the poor have been exploited and now, the good news, the poor will have a refuge. The poor will be safe. The poor be like a shade has come over them. But that's not all. Isaiah says, there's more here. So we're widening out the lens, right? The city image, Judah and Israel would have gotten that, they would have gotten that. The poor image, they would have gotten that, they would have gotten that. And the next image is a feast. There will be a feast, and this gets big, a feast for all the peoples. Now, this isn't just limited to the people who are listening to Isaiah. The feast imagery is woven throughout Scripture. Way back at the beginning, Adam and Eve in the garden, he says, I give you all the trees for what? Climbing? For food, right? Every tree that's good to look at, every plant bearing, I give it to you for food. Here you go. Here's some food. Enjoy the food. I love the food. Exodus. We're hungry, we won't have anything to eat. Oh, check this out. Man up from heaven, food comes down, right? Food. He says, hey, I'm gonna send you into this land. This land is gonna be awesome. This land is like, it's like, what can I say? Flowing with milk and honey. 
So again and again and again throughout the Old Testament, there's this image that in the presence of God, there's food. Yes. Yes, in the presence of God, there is food. So the people that Isaiah was, reading, was speaking to, these righteous people, they would have been like, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. That's not over because he's going to make a feast. It's not over because there's more to come. We, we long for that feast day. But you know what's cool? Is we know even more about it than they did. Because Jesus picks up this whole theme through his ministry. Twice there are people who are like, oh, we ran out of food. We don't know what to do. Well, go buy him food. Uh, what? I don't want to. Um, the disciples don't know what to do. There's this panic moment. Uh, you go buy him food. I don't know. You tell him. I'm not going to tell him. Right? And what happens in both instances? Too much food. Lots of food, leftovers, Ziploc bags for everyone. <laughs> Too much food, right? That's not incidental. That's not just like, this is cool. Look at my jazzy Messiah skills. It's the exact fulfillment of this. When God shows up, there is food. It is also not a coincidence that Jesus' first miracle is what? Changing water into wine, well-aged wine, strained, clear. The critique that comes back from the people in charge of the wedding is, your, your wine is too good. The wine you made is just too good. It's, uh, you, sh you should have served that earlier because it's really good. That's about this. That's about Isaiah 25. That's Jesus saying, I am God right here with you. Food, drink, be happy. But wait, there's more. Because Jesus himself is the host at a feast. And he gathers the disciples around the table and he says to them, I'm going to give you this bread. And it's a symbol for my body. And I'm going to give you this cup. And it's a symbol for my blood. And I'm not going to drink this until the kingdom comes into fulfillment. I'm not, I'm not going to do this again until I get to do it with everybody. And John has this vision. We're going to study it next year. It's called the book of Revelation. John has this vision. And at one point in the vision, the angel comes and says to him, look at this. And he, there's this multitude. He says it's like thunder peals. And they're all saying, hallelujah for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. And he's overwhelmed by everything. And they say, oh, we're so happy because the wedding feast of the Lamb has come. And the bride has made herself ready. And she is dressed in fine linen, which is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel turns to John and says, write this down. Get this down. I'm going to say it slowly. Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding feast of the Lamb. Oh, yeah. Now, the people who first heard these words, they had no idea about that stuff. But we do. We do. But wait, there's more. Because the passage goes on to say, it's not just going to be about food and drink, my friends. It's going to be 
about the swallowing up of death itself. The shroud that is cast over all peoples, the sheet that is spread over all nations, he will swallow up death forever. Then the Lord God will wipe away the tears from all faces. You see, God has set himself against death from the beginning. He says to Adam and Eve in the garden, enjoy all the food, love all the food, enjoy it. Make pies and jams and jellies, grow things, grow potatoes. You can even grow them on Mars, apparently. You could do all this stuff. <laughs> grow and flourish. One tree, this tree right here. All right, you can have all the other trees. This one, don't eat this one. Because if you eat this one, you're going to die. And then they eat it, spoiler alert. And the one who's kind of been the instigator in all of this is still around. And he looks at the serpent and he says, yeah, someday they're going to strike the heel of their descendant. But he will crush your head. And that is a promise. That's not like maybe someday it will look like something. No, that's a guarantee. And what we see then throughout Scripture is God setting himself up against death again and again and again and again. In the book of Exodus, the tenth plague is the plague of death. And the only way to be spared it is by taking the blood of a lamb and spreading it on the lintels and the top of your doorframe. And from generation to generation to generation after that event, the Jews look back on that feast, look back on that festival, and they say, we should have died, but we didn't because God gave us a way out. In fact, there's this joke that every Jewish festival is basically, they tried to kill us, we won, let's eat. And that's what we see in the Passover, right? There are foods associated with Passover. There are foods associated with each one of the Jewish festivals because each of them in some way stands up against death and says, you can come this far, but you can't come any farther. And this happens again and again. With every sacrifice, they are reminded of death. With every turn, they are reminded that death needs to be conquered. And so when Isaiah prophesied this to the righteous, they would have heard this and they would have said, yes, we know, we remember the promise in Genesis. We remember the Passover. We remember the festivals. We remember all the times that our God has saved us from death. We remember and we long for the day when someday it will be over. But they didn't know what we know. They didn't know that the Messiah would come and that he would actually stand up against death a little girl comes to life. They're carrying a son out on a pallet, taking him to the grave. He stops it. He raises the son. There's a brother who's been dead in the grave for three days. His sisters are upset. Jesus goes. He cries because he knows how bad death is. He doesn't take it lightly. And he says to his brother, Lazarus, come forth. And he does. But wait, there's more. Because Jesus himself was crucified 
died and was buried, and he descended into hell. But on the third day, wow! The women go to the tomb and they're sad and they got the spices and they walk up and the, the stones rolled away and they're confused and there are these people in white. They're like, what is happening right now? And they say to them, um, why are you looking for the living among the dead? <laughs> Guys, don't you remember when you were in Galilee how he said to you that the Son of Man had to be betrayed into the hands of sinners, crucified, and then he would rise on the third day, right? And they're like, oh, yeah, right, that's right. He totally did say that. <laughs> and they go back and they tell the disciples. Who told someone else, who told someone else, who told someone else, who told someone else, who told this guy named Saul, who didn't believe it at first. He was a little reluctant. But then Jesus showed up to him, and he was like, I get it now. And then he's writing a letter to a church, and he says to them, he says, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. He wrote it. Not the Harry Potter lady. <laughs> the last enemy to be destroyed is death. And then he says, where, O oh death, is your victory? Where, O oh death, is your sting? Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. But wait. There is more. Because at the very end of the story, at the very end of Revelation, John looks up and he sees a new heaven and a new earth for the first earth and the first heaven had passed away and there was no more sea. And then he says, I saw a holy city. Ooh, reference back, get it? A holy city descending the new Jerusalem. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, now the dwelling of God is right in with his people. And he will dwell with them. And they will be his people and he will be their God. And he will wipe every tear from their face. And there will be no more mourning and no more sadness and no more crying and no more pain and no more death. That's why we're here. That's why this matters. That's what it's all about. There's a problem though. Sorry to tell you this in case you haven't figured it out. Uh, it hasn't happened yet. And so we're in this season where the weightiness and the weariness of the world and of our own lives just, just kind of carried along with us. But wait. Isaiah 25 begins with Isaiah speaking all by himself. I will exalt. I will do this. Verse 9, it will be said on that day, the day that is yet to come, the day that we long for more than any other day, that will be said on that day, lo, this is our God. We have waited for him so that he might save us. This is the Lord for whom we have waited. 
Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation, for the hand of the Lord will rest on this mountain. This is where we align perfectly with the righteous who heard this the first time because they knew that they had to wait and they didn't know how long it would be. And we know that we have to wait and we don't know how long it's going to be. And that's hard. Waiting is a key component of the Christian life. Get good at it. Get good at it together. And how we get good at it is by reminding ourselves of the big picture, the whole story, the genesis to revelation, faithfulness of our God who provides food and food and food again and really good wine. And because he's providing us food every day, we don't die. And in the life that he gives us through food, we are reminded again and again that someday we will never die. That death indeed will be swallowed up in victory. And so we gather around this feast today, not because we may be so physically hungry. This isn't something where we're just going to try and get our calorie intake for the day. But we gather around this and we call this a feast because it is what God has provided, and it is a foretaste, it is a sign, it is a symbol of what is yet to come. We say this is a feast because we share it with all the peoples, everyone through all time who has known Jesus Christ has celebrated the feast. And when we celebrate the feast through the amazing work of the Holy Spirit, we join with the saints of all times and all places, and we feast. And we call this a feast because in ways in which we do not understand, Jesus himself is present at this table. And when we take this bread and dip it in the cup and take it in, in ways beyond our understanding, he nourishes our souls he gives you exactly what you need today. Just as he gave food in the garden and manna from heaven and milk and honey and wine at a wedding. When you take this bread and drink this cup, Jesus feeds you. And this is how we wait. We wait because Jesus is here. We can wait because Jesus feeds us. We can wait because we know that Jesus has triumphed over death. And we do not need to be afraid. And so we wait as bold people with our heads up and our shoulders back. We wait for the day when we get to say, this is our God. We waited for him and he showed up. This is our God. His salvation is here. We wait for that day together.